0: It's amazing how if you just keep slogging away at something day after day, week after week, year after year, when you're done, you have a bridge or a building or a novel, or in this case, the 99th QuackCast. This QuackCast is called Guiding Lights. This is, I admit, a content-free podcast podcast. July and August are the sunny days here in the Great Pacific Northwest, and rather than spend my time in front of the computer, I'm outside with the kids. To compound matters, I was on call the Labor Day weekend. I usually write the first draft of these essays the weekend before they are due, and was busy. I am finally finishing this on a Thursday on an airplane to Vegas. My wife and I are taking our first non-child-containing vacation in 19 years when my youngest is on a four-day school trip. We are going to wander the strip, see Penn and Teller, and enjoy the desert heat as a couple and not as a family. Most weird. So I have not had much time to spend researching a topic. So I thought instead I would ramble on about two and a half topics that have been on my mind. Writing, of course, helps focus my thoughts. Even though I often have residents on service who can write my notes for me, I still write daily notes as the act of putting thoughts into words is the best way to clarify thoughts. Next week the kids are back in school and I am sure the rains will start up again and I will have time to go into full research mode. In the meantime, feel free to ignore this particular podcast. There's nothing to see here. Move along. As a third-year resident, I came across the notes I had written on a patient when I was an intern, and I thought, man, what a maroon, or what an ignoramus!" I was amazed at what I had learned in the prior three years. Somewhat of the same process has occurred at my time at Science-Based Medicine and doing this podcast. Not only have I learned a ton about various scams, but more importantly, I have refined and extended both how I think and why I think. There are two events recently that started my unusual attempt at introspection. Socrates, I am not, preferring to keep the demons at bay by keeping my mind busy with external stimuli rather than examining my own life. The first was an entry on the central dogma of scam by David Gorski. The second was a video from TAM where Jamie Ian Smith talked in part about what are the standards for being a skeptic. It led me to thinking about the criteria I use to assess medicine in the medical literature. What are the standards I mostly try to follow? They're not so much dogma as first or guiding principles that I use. I write here only for myself. My colleagues are free to disallow any knowledge of my actions. There is a reality independent of human existence. It is the truth I hold to be self-evident. If all humans were to vanish in a puff of carbon dioxide and water, reality would go on without us. Long after the sun has gone nova, Voyager will continue its trajectory through space following the laws of motion and gravity independent of human beings. Unless, of course, it returns as V'ger. Reality is defined by the basic sciences. At the human scale... Classical physics, anatomy, chemistry, physiology, biochemistry, etc., provide a reasonably complete framework for the understanding of medicine and reality. If there is, as someone more fluent in English than I has suggested, more things under heaven and earth than dreamt of in my philosophy, then it needs to be demonstrated as either an extension of what we know or as a radical new physical phenomenon. In my scant 30 years in medicine, All the breakthroughs have come from extensions of what we know. The demonstration of energies, physiologies, and anatomies that are the underlying mechanism by which various scams are purported to work and to have their effect are a Godot that has yet to arrive. Plausibility within the context of known reality is important in evaluating the truthiness of new medical phenomena. I have practiced medicine for 30 years, and I increasingly appreciate the concept of practice. And while there has been much that has been learned or discovered, there is nothing that has not been within the framework of basic sciences. In contrast, much of SCAM is not just implausible, but impossible, given the accumulated knowledge of the last 500 years. There is unlikely to be medical discoveries that are the equivalent of dark matter or dark energy. The dreams of Dr. Oz et al. for a new medicine based on, say, energy therapy, are illusory. The default mode of the brain is not rational critical thinking. Not only is it difficult to think rationally and avoid the numerous logical fallacies to which we are prone, I actually wonder if it is impossible for some. Most human characteristics fall into a bell-shaped distribution, with some people having more or less of a characteristic than others. Variability is the norm, although often within narrow parameters. If there is a spiritual module to the brain, I don't have it. Whether I was raised that way or born that way, I cannot say, but it appears to be x linked in my family. I have always been unable to comprehend spiritual concepts, and it is not a lack of trying in my younger days. All I ever developed from meditating in a Zen temple were numb legs from sitting cross-legged. I have friends and family who seem to be able to commune with gods and spirits that I can neither understand nor comprehend. It is, I suppose, like color to a deaf person or music to the blind. Similarly, I really wonder if rational critical thinking module is missing or rudimentary in some people. How else can someone read about homeopathy or Reiki and not laugh? Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I lack the necessary neurologic module to concede the truth. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Richard Feynman Combined with the Dunning-Kruger effect, this makes for a potent combination for researchers, patients, and physicians to completely misinterpret information. My time in the world of scam has reinforced the notion that we think poorly, do not realize we are thinking poorly, and unable to realize that we can't realize that we think poorly. Convoluted? You bet, and I will not go into another level into the inception. Inrays, rays of course, remain my archetype example of how easy it is for honest and intelligent researchers to fool themselves and others. So much of the scam literature is a measurement of in rays emitted from the tooth fairy. I don't think Harriet Hall is aware that tooth fairies are the primary source of in rays We are prone to a plethora of logical fallacies that keep us convinced that unreality is real, and those same fallacies keep us from recognizing our errors. Perhaps that is why I do not like to examine my own life. The enormity of the mistakes could make me explode like Mr. Creosote. Most medical research is of poor quality and the results are overstated or wrong. Although there is a great deal of enjoyment in dissecting a scam paper, most of them being of remarkably poor quality, I have come to realize how much of what is published in the medical literature is suboptimal. Quality medical research is extremely difficult to do, and it is certainly reflected in the scam literature, where it is rare to find an article that doesn't meet all the criteria that makes the conclusion suspect. It is sobering that simultaneously we know so much and so little about the treatment of common diseases. The nice thing about infectious diseases, at least, is I have the luxury of knowing if I can kill a bug in a test tube, I can usually kill it in the patient. It makes treatment decisions easier when there is a lack of well-controlled clinical trials for unusual diseases. The plural of anecdote is anecdotes, not data. Anecdotes are powerful. People respond to stories of cures more viscerally than knowing the results of a study. And there has never been a good answer when a believer tells me an anecdote where their friend's aunt had pain relief from acupuncture or cancer cured by colloidal silver. And just what do you have to say to that, Mr. Skeptic? Nothing, of course. It does make me look a little out of touch, a bloviating old naysayer droning on about bias and placebo. We do need to be better with anecdotes and stories. Not as proof of concept, mind you, but illustrative of a concept. In medicine, lectures are often started with a case to personalize the disease or treatment to be discussed, and we need to do more of that. In my experience, those remain the three most dangerous words in medicine, at least as a criteria for choosing a treatment. A physician who uses the word strong, or big gun, or powerful to describe antibiotics has demonstrated with almost 100% sensitivity and specificity they know nothing about antibiotics and should be ignored. Similarly, avoid the physician who chooses therapies from experience. Simultaneously, experience has made me an infinitely better diagnostician, but I would wager that most healthcare workers conflate the two and don't recognize that just because experience makes them better in one sphere of medicine It doesn't necessarily make them better in the other. Like anecdotes, however, in my experience is the proverbial two-edged sword. Patients want to know that you have experience and success with whatever treatment you are suggesting and are less interested in what the studies show. I often try and mention both options. The studies demonstrate that I am prescribing the best therapy and it has worked in my hands. Most of the time, they are more reassured that I have experience than the fact that I am up to date on the literature. Every now and then, I will treat a disease for the first time, such as, say, a tropical parasite. No one in Portland, Oregon has extensive experience with, say, Leishmania. Patients never looked comfortable when I say, oh yeah, this is my first case, this will be fun. But the data suggests the treatment will work. Patient and physician never think about the nuances of both anecdote or experience. Understanding is always tentative and subject to change. Everything is subject to change, although the requirements for changing an opinion are proportional to the amount of prior information to support a conclusion. It would take it a compelling study for me to change my mind that beta-lactams are the best antibiotic for the treatment of Staph aureus endocarditis, or that evolution is false, or that acupuncture effect is anything but patient and physician reporting bias. Oops, we are now on our descent to the Las Vegas airport. That's all, folks. These were all my opinions. Thank you for listening to them. Digression. I came across an interesting quote by way of skeptic in The Humanist. As a side note, in an article on women in secular movement, Susan Jacoby made an interesting comment. Quote, in the Center for Inquiry, the organization for which I'm most familiar, this often expresses itself as a division between humanists and people who call themselves skeptics. There is a lot of overlap between these two, but in my experience, mm, the skeptics tend to be more conservative. End of quote. Huh, I thought. Is this the case? This is not the distinction I would have made. Conservatives, to paint with a very broad brush, are... Reality and data adverse. I tend to label myself as a skeptic, although I agree with most humanist positions. I never think of myself as a humanist. What I know of both groups is more from their publication than from hands on experience. I usually find the skeptical inquirer interesting and informative, and I usually find free inquiry to be uninteresting. The difference to my mind is the former is more about facts the way reality may or may not function. The latter is more about opinion, the arbitrary laws and rules and habits and regulations that make a society more or less tolerable. What interests me is knowing how the natural world works. And while I have strong opinions on the issues raised by free inquiry, these opinions are based at their root on nothing, and as such are really not that interesting. When we were playing golf last week, my son double-hit the ball. He wondered why it counted as two strokes, and a swing and a miss also counted as a stroke. What, he asked is a golf stroke? The swing or the contact with the ball? I told him both. It is one of the many arbitrary and often inconsistent and irrational rules that govern life. A humanist would worry about those rules, a skeptic about how to measure a double hit or measure a miss. While I tend to have my bias in favor of a humanist philosophy... I suppose I am more a shruggy when it comes to their application. It would, however, make an interesting sociological-psychological study to compare and contrast the two groups. And that ends this particular podcast, a short one. See you next time. Bye.